0: Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2014 AWP conference in Seattle. The recording features Amy Tan and Ben Fountain. You will now hear Jill Christman and Jane Chavatori provide introductions. I was so hoping that the music would stop when I approached the (laughs) lectern. I thought, what am I going to do if it doesn't? Who will I call? Hello, everybody. I am Jill Crispin. I'm a member of the AWP board, and I am so delighted that you are all here today for a conversation with Amy Tan and Ben Fountain. Everybody's in the right place. No one ran screaming from the room. I also, my main role, I'm introducing the introducer, right? This is one of those introductions. So what you need to do with your cell phones, right? You need to make them quiet, and then you need to make your cameras so they won't flash, so that we have a quiet, calm space, but for the glaring lights. Um, On behalf of AWP, I want to thank you all for being here this afternoon, and I want to send out our gratitude to the National Book Critics Circle for sponsoring this special event. We are truly grateful. I am really excited. And without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the stage the Vice President of the National Book Critics Circle, Jane Chabatori, to get this conversation started. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jill Chrisman.
1: Um, It's great to be here, and I always like to say that when the AWP gathers, nowadays people are saying it's like Burning Man indoors. I don't think that's quite like Burning Man indoors, but it is annual, and it does create all kinds of excitement, explosiveness, inspiration, visual imagery. Um, It's an amazing event. I've been coming off and on since I was just out of graduate school and went to give a reading in Lawrence, Kansas with the late William Burroughs. Why they twinned the two of us, I don't know, but it was a memorable experience. And every time I've come here, I've seen people who I have revered, Marilyn Robinson, um, Tony Morrison. It's just been an amazing list—all wonderful writers that I've, I've wanted to emulate over the years. I've had a chance to here at the AWP. <laughs> but one of the things I wanted to do right now is offer the chance for you to give a round of applause to David Fenza and Christian Teresi and Cynthia Sherman and all of the board members of the AWP who worked so hard to make this happen. Can we do that? It's, it's an amazing group. It's just, um, they make it work, it's very special. I'd also like to ask if there are are AWP board members here, could you hold up your hand, in addition to Jill, so you can get noticed, you really should be given attention to. How about National Book Critics Circle members and board members? I've seen at least two of you here. Hold up your hand, I'd love for people to see you. The National Book Critics' Circle is 40 years old this year. We started as a group of people who used to go to the Algonquin Round Table in New York City and sit around, and they were book critics, and they talked about books, and they created an award that would be given by the critics only. It wasn't a publisher submission. It wasn't anything. It was a critics voting over a year-long process. They decided they wanted to have a National Book Critics' Circle that lasted beyond the Algonquin, way beyond the Hudson, all the way to the West Coast, and even to Hawaii. So it was a national book critic circle. It wasn't simply in one place. So that was 40 years ago. We will have our award ceremony for the newest group of awardees on March 13th this year. On March 12th, we'll have readings. And currently on our blog, which I'm in charge of as VP online, um, there are 30 reviews of the finalists we chose them in January. We argued all year on a password-protected right board. We had several meetings in which we discussed them in person. We voted down to the long, the short list uh, in January. So those finalists have been announced. Reviews of all those finalists are going up on the blog, even as I speak. We also have video interviews with those finalists on the blog. And I actually tweeted one of Ben from last year. So you get you get an opportunity to see them in interview sessions and also get a sense of what their, their work is like. And then we'll announce the winners on March 13th. You can find that all on our blog, bookcritics.org. We also have just inaugurated a number one new kind of award we're very happy about. It's named the John Leonard Award for a founding member. It's for the best first book in any genre, and the winner this year is Anthony Merrow, who I believe is down at Stanford. But he he was one, we had five finalists, and this is is an award that's given by the members, not by the board. Um, Another question for you guys, how many are you here for your first ever AWP? Wow, look at that. Are you having fun? Is it good? Are you getting what you want? Good. Oh, I'm I'm so glad. Are you a lot of Seattle people, West Coast people? Okay, all right, that's great. I'm so glad. I hope you will come by the Book Fair booth number 909 to say hello. That's where the book critics, board members and members have been hanging out since we started out on Wednesday. Um, We have a sign-up list. You can sign up free for critical notes. It goes out every week. It tells you a lot about what we're doing. You can join as a student member for 15 bucks. If you're not a professional reviewer, you can join as a friend of for 35 bucks and professionals you can also sign up if you're a reviewer. Um, we have a name that author game that's based on the past 40 years all the finalists and we only have 14 included. It's 14 clues. They're tough clues. Somebody who gets one might be a winner. And the winners will get autographed books by our featured speakers Amy Tan and Ben Fountain. We're going to draw that on Saturday morning about 11:30. So go by Booth 909, get your entry form, fill it out, and um, bring it back so we'll be able to consider you. Um, You know, one of the things that I always think about when I think about the National Book Critics Circle is how much we honor all of our finalists because we go such a, there's such a rigorous year-long vetting process. Everyone who's been a finalist stays part of our community of, of really, Fine writers, and we include them in um, events that we do, and we include them in the blog from time to time. Most recently, I asked a series of our former finalists and winners, along with our members, what was your favorite NBCC winner of all time, and we ran about forty different return, you know, responses from Richard Powers and. Um, all the way through one of our student members. So that's another way in which we keep keep abreast of our winners and and keep an eye on excellence in literature. Um, Which is saying we're really excited today with having Amy Tan and and Ben Fountain here to read from their work. Um, Ben is our most recent NBCC Fiction Award winner. His book was considered last year and uh, given the award. And Amy comes to us after her first novel, The Joy Luck Club, was nominated as a finalist for our award 25 years ago. And one of the exciting things for me is that Amy kicked off her book tour 25 years ago at Elliott Bay in Seattle. So there's something really kind of delicious about having her here in addition to Ben. I'm gonna go in alphabetical order by last name, Um, and so first up is Ben Fountain. He is the author of Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, published in 2012, which received the National Book Critics Circle Award and also the Los Angeles Times Book Award for Fiction. It was a finalist also for the National Book Award. His story collection, Brief Encounters with Che Guevara, received the Penn Hemingway Award, the Barnes and Noble Discover Award for Fiction, and a Whiting Writer's Award. His short fiction has appeared in Esquire, Harper's, and the Paris Review, and his nonfiction has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. He lives in Dallas. Ben will be reading from his award winner, and I have to say I mentioned the 30 books in 30 days we do in his citation last year. Our board member Steve Kelman noted, During World War II, the US Army commissioned Frank Capra to create a documentary series explaining why we fight. A virtuoso account of the noxious nexus of football, business, and combat, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk makes magnificent mischief explaining why we should not. Ben Fountain.
2: Thanks, CJ. Thank you, Jane, and thanks for having me here. Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. People say, well, what authors were you thinking about when you were working on this book? And Joseph Heller is is someone that a lot of people suggest I was thinking about, or Kurt Vonnegut. Actually, I was thinking more of the Marx Brothers and the Muppets. Uh, I just, I think, you know, they represent two of the highest achievements of Western culture in the and I'm serious, in the way that um, that uh, they go into conventional social situations and wreak havoc. I just think it's wonderful the way they do that. And so I'm gonna read a couple of sections from Billy Lynn, a couple of short sections where um, that you might say these were inspired by the Muppets and and the Marx Brothers. Just very quickly, um, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk takes place over the course of one day at the old Texas Stadium where the Cowboys used to play. It's Thanksgiving Day and, and um, the Cowboys always play on Thanksgiving Day. The Bravos have been brought back from Iraq for a two-week quote victory tour around the United States and then they're gonna sent, be sent straight back to Iraq. And they're at the Cowboys game on the last day of their tour and uh, they head back to Fort Hood and then to Iraq in the days that follow. So Billy Lynn and his buddy, Mango, they're both Bravos, they're out walking along the concourse of Texas Stadium before the game. Billy and Mango finish their pizza and start walking. With some food in their bellies, they're feeling stoked. And on a whim, they wander into Cowboys Select, the highest end of all the on-site establishments offering Cowboys apparel and brand merchandise for sale. The dizzying scent of fine leathers meets them at at the door, along with a brightly lit Texas lottery machine. Flat screen TVs mounted in the walls are playing a highlights reel from the Aikman years. Billy and Mango are a little bit punchy coming in. They're primed for an ironic retail experience, and in seconds the place has them laughing out loud. It's not just the racks and racks of upscale clothing, the fine jewelry, the framed and certified collector memorabilia. No, you had to admire the determination, the sheer marketing balls, of stamping the Cowboys brand on chess sets, toaster ovens, high-capacity ice makers, personal oxygen bars, and laser-guided pool cues. Dude, check it out, an entire line of Cowboys kitchenware. The two Bravos grow so rowdy that other customers start to give them some space. As far as Billy and Mango are concerned, the store store is a museum. These are all things to look at but nothing a Bravo could buy, and the humiliation of it makes them a little wild. His and hers cotton terry cloth robes, like $400. Authentic game jerseys, 150, excuse me, $159.95. Cashmere pullovers, cut crystal Christmas ornaments, Tony Llama limited edition boots. As their shame and sense of insult mount, the two Bravos become rough with each other. Dude, check it out, sick bomber jacket. Only 679 bucks, dog. Is it leather? The fuck you mean, hell yeah, it's leather. Because, dog, I don't think so. I think that's pleather. The fuck it's pleather? uh dumb shit. It's just you're so fucking ghetto, you don't know from pleather. <laughs> Suddenly they're grappling. They've hooked arms in a fierce shoulder clinch and lumber about like a couple of barroom drunks, grunting, cursing each other and butting heads, laughing so hard they can hardly stand up. Their berets go flying as they tear at their ears. It hurts and they laugh harder. They're gasping now, bitch, shitbag, cum slut, faggot. Mango jabs at Billy with stinging uppercuts. Billy crams a fist into Mango's armpit and off they go on a left tilting axis, pottery wheel and pot rolling loose across the floor. Can I help you? Someone is shouting, jumping in and out of the way. Gentlemen, fellas, guys, can I help you? Whoa there. Billy and Mango separate, come up flushed and laughing. The salesman, store manager, a middle-aged white guy with thinning hair. He too is laughing, but it's clearly a situation for him what with two obvious lunatics on his hands. Everyone else, staff, customers, is standing well back. Is this leather? Billy asks, lifting a sleeve from the rack of bomber jackets. Cause moron here is trying to tell me it's pleather. Oh no, sir, says the manager, that's genuine leather. He's chuckling, he knows they're putting him on. But in the manner of straight men since the beginning of time, whose job it is to bring order to a sick and comical world, He launches into a fruity description of this full-grain aniline lamb's leather jacket, the special tanning and dyeing processes, and so forth, not to mention the coat's superior construction qualities. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. The Bravos hear him out with the rapt expressions of cavemen watching popcorn pop. (laughs) See, dumb fuck? Billy cuffs Mango's shoulder. I told you it was leather. Like you know so much about fashion. I bet you ain't even wearing underwear. They swat at each other, start to grapple, but the manager's gulpy woe calls them off. So, huh, Billy says, fingering one of the jackets, you sell a lot of these? Five or six a game. When we're winning, we might do better than that. Damn, your peep's got some juicy cash flow, huh? The manager smiles. I guess that's one way to put it. The Bravos thank the manager and leave. Dog, Mango says once they're outside. he says. Billy, he says. Then, shit. And that's all they say about it. Okay, I'm going to um, go a little bit farther on on in the book. Um, It's still before the game, and the eight Bravo soldiers are now in in a high-end club in the stadium, and they're having Thanksgiving Day dinner. And um, it's called the Stadium Club, and these Stadium Club patrons keep coming up to... um, Uh, say congratulations and thank the soldiers for their service. They're interrupted by a stadium club patron who wants to say hello. It's never the young or middle-aged men who stop to speak, but always the older guys, the silverbacks secure in the fact that they're past their fighting prime. They thank the soldiers for their, their service. They ask, how is lunch? They offer praise for such assumed attributes as tenacity, aggressiveness, love of country, This particular patron, a fit, ruddy fellow with some black still in his hair, introduces himself with a lavish trawling of vowels that comes out sounding like Hal Wayne. Soon he's telling them about the bold new technology his family's oil company uses to juice more crude out of the Barnett shale, something to do with salt water and chemical fracturing agents. Some of my friend's kids are serving over there with you, Hal Wayne tells them, so it's a personal thing with me, boosting domestic production lessening our dependence on foreign oil. I figured the better i do my job, the sooner we can bring you young men home. Thank you, Sergeant Dime responds. That's just excellent, sir. We certainly do appreciate that. I'm just trying to do my part. And that was cool, Billy will later reflect. If Hal Wayne had just said, enjoy your meal like everybody else and returned to his lucrative, patriotic life. But no, he got greedy. He had to squeeze just a little bit more from Bravo. So, he says, just from your own perspective, how do you think we're doing over there? How are we doing? Dom echoes brightly, just from our own perspective. The Bravos fold their hands and look down at their plates, though several can't help smiling. Well, it's a war, Dom continues in that same bright voice, which is by definition an extreme situation, people trying very hard to terminate each other. But I'm far from qualified to speak to the big picture, sir. All I can tell you with any confidence is the exchange of force with intent to kill. That is truly a mind-altering experience, sir. I'm sure, I'm sure, Hal Wayne is gravely nodding. I can imagine how hard it is on you young men to be exposed to that level of violence. No, Dom interrupts. That's not it at all. We like violence. We like going lethal. I mean, isn't that what you're paying us for? To take the fight to America's enemies and send them straight to hell? if we didn't like killing people then what's the point you might as well send in the Peace Corps to fight the war (laughs) Uh aha Hal Wayne chuckles though his smile has lost some wattage I guess you've got me there listen you see these men sergeant dime gestures around the table I love every one of these mutts like a brother I bet I love them more than their mamas even but I'll tell you frankly and they know how I feel so I can say this right in front of them but just for the record This is the most murdering bunch of psychopaths you'll ever see. (laughs) I don't know how they were before the army got them, but you give them a weapons system and a couple of ripped fuels and they'll blast the hell out of anything that moves. Isn't that right, Bravo? Yes, Sergeant! They answer instantly with gusto. Throughout the restaurant, dozens of well-coiffed heads whip around. See what I mean? Dime quartals. They're killers. They're having the time of their lives. So if your family's oil company wants to frack the living shit out of the Barnett shale, That's fine, sir. That's absolutely your prerogative, but don't be doing it on our account. You've got your business, and we've got ours, so you just keep on drilling, sir, and we'll keep on killing. Hal Wayne opens his mouth and flaps his jaw once or twice, but nothing comes out. His eyes have receded deep into his head. Behold, Billy thinks, the world's most mind-fucked millionaire. I've got to go, Hal Wayne mumbles, glancing around as if checking his escape route. Don't talk about shit you don't know, Billy thinks, and therein lies the dynamic of all such encounters. The Bravos speak from the high ground of experience. They are authentic. They are the real. They have dealt much death and received much death and smelled it and held it and slopped through it in their boots, had it spattered on their clothes and tasted it in their mouths. That is their advantage, and given the masculine standard America has set for itself, It is interesting how few actually qualify. While we fight, yo, who is this we? Here in the chicken hawk nation of blowhards and bluffers, Bravo always has the ace of bloods up its sleeve. Thank you very much.
1: Ben, that's one of my favorite passages in the book, and I also love that every once in a while you come across somebody who puts their words together a certain way. And you know, silverback is such a perfect word. Anyway, um, thank you. Appreciate it. And now Amy Tan. Amy was born in the United States to immigrant parents from China. She rejected her mother's expectations that she become a doctor and concert pianist. She chose to write fiction instead. Her novels are The Joy Luck Club, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, The Kitchen God's Wife, The Hundred Secret Sentences, The Bone Setter's Daughter, which also became an opera, by the way, Saving Fish from Drowning, and all of them were New York Times bestsellers. She's also the author of the memoir, The Opposite of Fate, two children's books, The Moon Lady and Sagwa, The Chinese Siamese Cat, and numerous articles for magazines. Her work has been translated into 35 languages. Um, As I mentioned, the Joy Luck Club's 25th anniversary is coming up in March. Amy also will be coming back on March 22nd to do a gala at the library in Kings County. So those of you who live in Seattle could watch for that as well. She will be reading from her new novel, The Valley of Amazement, which is actually an amazing book. It's a remarkable book. The Valley of Amazement is both um, a, a painting by a Hudson River School painter, which I hadn't known about. You know, it's, it's sort of like this imagined painting that goes back in time, but it, it carries throughout the full book. And one of the things I said when I reviewed it for NPR is that Amy Tan is a master of illusion, and one of the best storytellers around. So it's a real honor to introduce Amy to read from her book, The Valley of Amazement.
3: Well, I could, I could see the influence of the Muppets and uh, and the Marx Brothers. I wish I had such great cultural models, but I'll have to say it was Gilligan's Island. Um, actually, the, the book was inspired by a photograph that I found of my grandmother that suggested she had been a courtesan, and that led me directly into doing a lot of research to find out what a courtesan house really was. And so I'm going to start reading from the beginning, portions from the beginning, that will um, give you an idea of what life was like there. When I was seven, I knew exactly who I was, a thoroughly American girl in race, manners, and speech, whose mother, Lulu Mintern, was the only white woman who owned a first-class courtesan house in Shanghai. My mother named me Violet after a tiny flower she loved as a girl growing up in San Francisco, a city I've only seen in postcards. I grew to hate my name. The courtesans pronounced it like the Shanghainese word, what you said when you wanted to get rid of something. "Viola, Viola," greeted me everywhere. My mother took a Chinese name, Lulu Mimi, which sounded like her American one, and her courtesan house was then known as the House of Lulu Mimi. Her Western clients knew it by the English translation of the characters in her name, Hidden Jade Path. There were no other first-class courtesan houses that catered to both Chinese and Western clients, many of whom were among the wealthiest in foreign trade. And thus, she broke taboo rather extravagantly in both worlds. Excuse me. Approaching the gate of the mansion, you would know at a glance that you were about to enter a fine house with a respected history, The archway still held the carved stone plaque befitting a Ming scholar. A bit of the lichen had been left on the corners as proof of authenticity. The thick gate was regularly refreshed with red lacquer and the brass fittings polished to a gleaming richness. On each of the pillars was a panel with two names of the house, Hidden Jade Path on the right side and the house of Lulu Mimi in Chinese on the left. Once you entered through the gate and into the front courtyard, you would think you had stepped back into the days when the poet ghost was master of the house. The garden was simple and of classical proportions, from fish ponds to gnarly pines. Beyond it stood a rather austere house, the face a plain gray plaster over stone, the lattice windows showing a simple cracked ice pattern. The gray tiled roof had eaves that curved upward, not excessively so, but enough to suggest they were the wings of lucky bats and in front of the house was the poet's steel, restored to its rightful place, sitting on a tortoise, topped with a dragon, and proclaiming the scholar would be remembered for 10,000 years. Once you stepped in the vestibule, however, all signs of the Ming vanished. At your feet was a colorful pattern of encaustic Moorish tiles, and facing you was a wall of red velvet curtains. When they were drawn back, you were born into a palace of heavenly charms, as my mother called it. This was the Grand Salon, and it was entirely Western. That was the fashion in the better courtesan houses. But my mother's sense of Western fashion was authentic and also daring. 400 years of cold echoes had been muffled by colorful tapestries, thick carpets, and an overabundance of low divan and stiff settees fainting couches, and Turkish Ottomans. Flower stands held vases of peonies the size of babies' heads, and round tea tables were set with lamps that gave the salon the honeyed amber glow of a sunset. On the bureaus, a man could pluck cigars out of ivory humidors and cigarettes out of cloisonne filigreed jars. The tufted armchairs were engorged with so much batting they resembled the buttocks of the people who sat in them. Some of the decorations were quite amusing to the Chinese. The blue and white v- vases imported from France, for example, were painted with the depictions of Chinese people whose faces resembled Napoleon and Josephine. Heavy mohair curtains covered the lattice windows, weighted with red, green, and yellow tassels, and fringes thick as fingers. Carlotta, my cat's favorite toys. Chandeliers and wall sconces illuminated the paintings of rosy-cheeked Roman goddesses with muscular white bodies who cavorted next to similarly muscled white horses, grotesque shapes, I heard Chinese men say, which depicted, in their opinion, bestiality. On the right and left sides of the Grand Salon were doorways that led to smaller, more intimate rooms, and beyond them were covered passageways, through courtyards that led to the scholar's former library, painting studio, and family temple, all cleverly transformed into rooms where a businessman could host a dinner party for friends and be entertained by ladylike courtesans who sang with heartbreaking emotion. At the back of the Grand Salon, my mother had installed a curved carpeted staircase with a red lacquered wooden banister, which took you up to three curved velvet-lined balconies modeled after those found in opera houses. They overlooked the Grand Salon, and where, excuse me, (coughs) and from them I often viewed the festivities below as Carlotta strolled back and forth on the balustrades. The parties began after sundown. Carriages and rickshaws arrived throughout the night. Cracked Egg, the great gatekeeper, would have already memorized the names of those who were coming, and they were the only ones allowed to enter. From my perch, I saw the men burst through the red curtains and into that palatial room. I could tell if a man was a newcomer. He would gaze at the scene before him, scanning the room, incredulous to see Chinese and Western men greeting each other, speaking with civility. The Westerner would have his first glimpse of courtesans and their habitat. He might have only seen them passing by on the thoroughfare in carriages, Dressed in their furs and hats, but here they were within reach. He could speak to one, smile with admiration, although the learned, he learned quite emphatically that he was not allowed to touch. I was delighted to see my mother inspire awe in men of different nationalities. She possessed the power to re- render men speechless from the moment they walked into the room. Our courtesans were among the most popular and talented of all the girls working in the first-class houses of Shanghai. Elegant, seductively coy, tantalizingly elusive, and skillful at singing or reciting poems. They were known as the Cloud Beauties. Each had the word Cloud in her name, and that identified the house to which she belonged. When they left the house, whether to marry, join a nunnery, or work in a lower-class house, the cloud evaporated from their name. The ones who lived there when I was seven were Rosy Cloud, Billowy Cloud, Snowy Cloud, and my favorite, Magic Cloud. All of them were clever. Most had been 13 or 14 when they arrived and would be 23 or 24 when they left. My mother set the rules over how they could conduct business with the guests and what share of their earnings and expenses they would pay to the house. Golden Dove managed the courtesan's behavior and appearance and assured that, ensured they would upheld the standards and reputation of a first-class courtesan house. Golden Dove knew how easily a girl's reputation could be lost. She had once been one of the most popular courtesans of her time until her patron knocked out her front teeth and broke half the bones in her face. By the time she mended, with her face slightly askew, Other beauties had taken her place, and she could not overcome speculation that she must have greatly wronged her patron to have incited violence in such a peaceable man. As comely as those courtesans were, every guest, whether Chinese or Western, hoped to see one woman in particular, my mother. From my perch she was easy to spot by the springy mass of brown curls that graced her shoulders in a careless style. My hair was very much like hers, only darker. Her skin had a dusky tinge. She told people proudly that she had a few drops of Bombay blood in her. No one would have ever honestly described my mother as beautiful, neither Chinese nor foreigner. She had a long angled nose that looked like it had been roughly sculpted with a paring knife. Her forehead was tall and wide, the telltale sign of a cerebral nature. Golden Dove said her chin bulged like a pugnacious little fist, and her cheeks had bladed angles. Her irises were unusually large, and her eyes lay in deep, dark sockets, fanned by dark eyelashes. But she was captivating, everyone agreed, more so than a woman with regular features and great beauty. It was everything about her, the smile, the husky and melodious voice, the provocative and languorous movement of her body. She sparkled, she glowed. If a man received even a glance from her penetrating eyes, he was enthralled. I saw that time and again. She made each man feel he was special to her. She was without peer and style as well. Her clothes were of her own witty design. My favorite was a lilac colored gown of near transparent silk organza that floated above pale pink tussa. It was embroidered with a winding vine of tiny leaves. At her bosom, two pink rosebuds climbed out of the top of the vine. And if you thought the rosebuds were silk as well, you would be only half right, because a genuine rose, for one was a genuine rose that loosened its petals and released its scent as the night wore on. From the balcony, I followed her as she crisscrossed the room, the tail of her skirt swishing behind her, the admiration of men in her wake. I saw her bend her face one way to speak to a Chinese man, then at another angle to speak to a westerner. I could see that each felt privileged that she had selected him for her attention. What all those men wanted from my mother was the same thing. It was her guanxi as the Chinese called it, her influential connections, as the Westerners put it. It was her familiarity with many of the most powerful and successful Westerners and Chinese in Shanghai, Canton, Macau, and Hong Kong. It extended to her knowledge of their businesses and the opportunities they held, as well as the ones they did not. Her magnetism was her ability to put men and prospects together for profit. The envious madams of other courtesan houses said that my mother knew these men and their secrets because she slept with all of them, hundreds of men of every shade of skin. Or, they said, she blackmailed them by learning of the illegal means they had used to gain their money. It could also be that she drugged them nightly who knew what it took to get those men to give her what she needed to know. Mother had another room adjoining her office. These two rooms were separated by French glass doors and thick curtains for privacy. That room was called Boulevard because its windows faced a view of King Road and it served several purposes. During the day, I took my lessons there with my American tutors. However, if Mother or Golden Dove had guests from out of town, the visitors were given that room as their accommodations. On occasion, a courtesan showed poor planning or excessive popularity by booking two clients for the same night. She would entertain one client in Boulevard and the other in her boudoir. As she was careful, neither client would know of her duplicity. My room was on the north side of the east wing, and being close to the main corridor enabled me to hear the gossip of the four maids who stood just around the corner from my window while awaiting orders to bring tea, fruit, or hot towels and such. As they served the courtesan, they were privy to how well she was succeeding with a new admirer. It always puzzled me why the courtesans assumed the maids were deaf. You should have seen her face when the necklace he showed her was worth less than half what she had hoped for. I wasn't surprised. Her situation is dire. Within a month, she'll be gone. Ah, yeah, poor girl, she's too good for this kind of fate. In the early evening, at least one cloud beauty would lead her patron to the larger courtyard below for romantic talk about nature. I stood on the walkway and listened to those rehearsed murmurings so often I could recite them as wistfully as the courtesans. The moon was a topic they brought up often. I should be happy seeing the full moon, my love, but I feel sick because I'm reminded my debts are waxing and your ardor is waning. Why else have you not given me a gift lately? Should my devotion be rewarded with poverty? It did not matter how generous the patron was. The beauty would press him for more, and often the long-suffering patron would sigh and tell his courtesan to not cry anymore. He would agree to whatever formula of happiness would quench the girl's complaints. That was usually how it worked. But one night, I heard with glee, as patron said, If you had your way, there would be a full moon every day. Don't harangue me with this moon nonsense ever again. In the late morning, I would hear the girls talking in the courtyard among themselves, The cheapskate pretended to be deaf. Just like that, he agreed, I should have asked months ago. His love is genuine. He told me I'm not like other flower beauties. By the light of the day, they saw different meanings in the sky, how changeable those clouds were, just like fate. They saw ominous signs and wispy streaks high in the sky, noting that they were so far away. They rejoiced when the clouds were as fat as babies' bottoms, and they were fearful when those babies turned over showing underbellies that were black. So many cloud beauties before them had seen their fates change in one day. They had been warned by the older flower sisters that popularity was as lasting as a fashionable hat. But as their reputations grew, most would forget the warning. They believed they would be the exception. Rosy Cloud complained to Golden Gov that I had been spying and that my laughter had nearly caused her suitor to lose interest. Golden Duff told my mother, and mother in turn told me very quietly that I should give the beauties their privacy and to not disturb their business. I took this to mean I should be more careful to not be noticed the next time. When another opportunity arose, I took it. At that age, I did not find what I saw to be titillating in a sexual way. It was more the thrill of doing what I knew would have embarrassed my victims, had they known. I'd been wicked in other ways, spying on a man as he was peeing into a chamber pot, putting greasy smear on the costume of a courtesan who snapped at me, and a few other pranks. One time I substituted metal cans for the silver bells that hung on the marriage bed, and as the man bounced fast and the bed shook, the couple heard clanking instead of clinking. With each transgression, I knew I was doing wrong but I also felt brave and thus excited while committing my ill deeds. I also knew what the Cloud Beauties really felt about their suitors and patrons and that knowledge gave me a secret power, one of no particular use but it was power nonetheless, as valuable as any trinket in my treasure box. As mischievous as I was, I had no desire to watch my mother and her lovers repulsed me to even imagine that she would allow a man to see her without her beautiful clothes. With the flower beauties, I had less hesitation. I watched them writhing on the divan. I saw men stare between their legs. I saw courtesans on their knees, kowtowing to a man's penis. One night I saw a heavyset man come into Billowy Cloud's room. His name was Prosper Yang. He had several factories some that made sewing machines and others that put women and children to work on those machines. He kissed her tenderly and she trembled and acted shy. He spoke soft words and her eyes grew wide and tearful as she removed her clothes. He moved his great mass and hovered her over her like a dark cloud and she wore a grimace of fear as if she were about to be crushed to death. He pressed himself against her and their bodies moved like thrashing fish. She struggled against him and sobbed in a tragic voice. And then their limbs coiled around each other like snakes. He uttered harsh animal sounds. She cried like a little shrieking bird. He leapt astride her backside and rode her as if she were a trotting pony until he fell off. He left her lying motionless on her side. As the moon shone through the window, her body gleamed white, and I thought she was dead. I watched for almost an hour until she finally awoke from near death with a yawn and an outstretched arm. That morning, in the courtyard, I heard Billowy Cloud tell another flower sister that Prosper Yang had told her that he cherished her and would be her patron, and that one day he might even make her his wife. What I had been watching suddenly became dangerous and sickening. Mother and Golden Dove had mentioned several times that I might marry one day. I had always viewed marriage as one of my many American privileges, and unlike the courtesans, I could assume it would be mine. I had never considered that my marriage would include a lot of bouncing on me, like what I had witnessed with Billowy Cloud and her suitor. Now I could not stop recalling those scenes, They came to me, unwanted, and gave me an ill feeling. For several nights, I had shocking dreams. In each, I had taken billowy clouds place and lay on my stomach, waiting. The dark shape of a man appeared against the translucent curtains. And a moment later, he burst in, Prosper Yang, and he jumped on my back and rode me like a pony, crushing my bones one by one. When he was done, I lay still. Cold as marble, I waited to move as billowy cloud had. Instead, I grew colder and colder because I was dead. I did not spy on the cloud beauties after that.
1: Check here because we're shifting from over there to conversation and I think I can hear my voice can you hear my voice all right I think there's one thing that we're going to try to do which is not look at each other while we speak so we're not being rude we're trying to keep our micing clear for you guys make sense does that work okay thank you all I have asked Amy and Ben both to think about a little bit the fact that each of them had enormous critical acclaim for a first novel. I know a lot of you out there might be wondering, what's it like, how long does it take to write a novel, The novel that you did so well by, that did so well and and entered the world in such an amazing way? Um, What was the process like of writing? How long did it take? What was the publication process like, and how has your life changed by a first novel? I'm going to ask Ben first to give Amy a chance to, you know, settle in after her reading, um, and then I'm going to ask Amy to
2: answer that question. Um, uh, the fact that, um, I mean, there's so many variables and so many things you can't control doing this kind of work. Really, the only thing you can control is getting the words on the page. And, um, and so, if, if by good fortune, you know, you get the book published um, and it goes out into the world, I mean, r- really anything can happen. Um, when good things started to happen, I suppose the main emotion was relief, um, that, uh, that it wasn't going to sink and disappear without a trace, so that maybe I could write another book um, or have the means to write another book. Um, and I suppose I've reached the point in my life where I can enjoy you know, having some success. Um, I've maybe put a certain amount of my WASP guilt um, complex behind me or, or suppressed it sufficiently that I can enjoy enjoy things like that. Um, let's see, what are, what are some of the other good things? People don't call you a bum to your face so much, <laughs> um, especially your in-laws. And... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, I don't know, it just makes writing the next book a little bit more feasible, it seems like.
1: It
3: was like winning the lottery, only never having entered the lottery. Um, I couldn't believe it. It was, um, you know, I, I was a very practical, realistic person who knew that first novels, if you were lucky, would sell about 5,000 copies. And so as these things were happening, I really was suspicious. Um, I ended up feeling as though somebody else had taken control of my life because it was so unreal. Um, And as things started growing, you know, when I got the nomination for the National Book Critics Circle Award or National Book Award, I I actually felt as though it, it was like Faust or like the portrait of Dorian Gray, you know, the selfie of Amy Tan, you know, and I was... I had bargained with the devil, but I didn't remember, you know, making the deal. Um, I was um, trying to figure out also why people liked the book, uh, and, you know, was it because it was exotic or was it, you know, and I, I had to be writing another book at the same time, and. Uh, It was so um, difficult with all that success on my shoulder that I started numerous novels, probably about seven of them, and threw away hundreds of pages and cracked three molars and broke out in hives.
1: Whoa.
3: (laughs) I I did not believe this would be my life until seven months after publication, and then I finally told Lou I probably could be a writer the rest of my life.
1: Can I also mention that each of you has had a prior career, and what was it like to feel that you'd already done one thing and then were becoming a writer?
2: Ben? Well, I went to law school and, and then practiced law. Um, I think now looking back on it, I was trying to avoid writing um, because it scared me. It seemed like the hardest thing and the thing least, um, least susceptible of predictable success. And um, But when I turned 30, by the time I turned 30, I realized I was never going to have any peace in myself unless I did this um, you know, really insane and, and irresponsible thing, and that was leave behind a safe career and, and try to write when I really hadn't written anything since college. Um, I mean, I think the legal education and the legal way of thinking held me back as far as fiction writing. I was very um, trained in this lockstep way of thinking which the law requires. and um, And doing this kind of work, fiction writing, I mean it has its own logic but it's more of an emotional logic. And it took me a long time to to get away from that legal kind of lockstep thinking into into a more emotional and and maybe intuitive way of thinking and writing.
3: Um, I was um a business writer for technological companies, um IBM and uh all the Bell companies when they when AT&T broke up, and I had many many clients. I worked 90 hours a week. I couldn't stop, and I could not feel satisfied with it. Um, and I ended up going to a psychiatrist. Somebody told me I was a workaholic, and I was. Um, he was very helpful. He fell asleep three times, <laughs> and I decided that I should do something just behavioral to find something uh, to stop working so much. And fiction won out. I started to write fiction in 1985 uh, at the age of 33. And because I was a successful business writer, I, it had the advantage to me of feeling I did not have to be a success in writing fiction, that I could do this solely for myself. and I. I found there was great satisfaction not just in the craft, but in the subterfuge I created for myself and thinking I was writing fiction and was actually writing about things that had disturbed me all my life, um, like my mother. And uh, so, um, you know, when I tell people, write for yourself, it, it sounds disingenuous. It's not if you have another livelihood that pays quite well. Um, Did it help? I think in the same way that Ben was talking about, that kind of writing doesn't really, it's not an advantage. It's the only thing I, I wish I had taken something away from it, like deadlines. Um, I had to meet deadlines constantly and I miss them all the time now. Um, The other was, um, I think, was uh, writing to please other people. That was what business writing was about was their agenda. Whereas with fiction writing, I had to really to be authentic, as they say, I really had to find out what I needed to write for myself.
1: What is your writing process like now? You have a new book out. It's been uh, uh, multiple novels and children's books and wonderful publication history, including this latest book. What's the process like now for you? Because you, I know you have other books in the works yeah. as well.
3: Do not follow anything I say. <laughs> it's bad advice. Um, I It's been eight years because I allowed myself to be distracted. Um, I wrote an opera. I, I built a brand new house from scratch. And the guy wanted me to pick out everything like light plates, which is, you know. Um, but. Basically, I do a lot of jotting in a a journal over the years, observations, ideas, and reflections on that. I do a lot of uh, research, I love research, Um, and when I finally sit down to write the novel, um, after writing numerous things out by hand, which is much more freeing to me, it's more the subconscious can come out, when I can finally um, sit down. I do the same sentences, beginning over and over and over again, and I say to myself, why am I doing this? Because all these sentences are going to go. By the time I get to the end of the book, all of that beginning is going to be gone, and I know that because that's what's happened in every single book. And yet I have to do that. I have to be in that place. It always begins with a place, and I have to be there and firmly in that place in order to begin. Um, But the beginning often has to do with what What moment in that character's life begins the story? And I know it thematically, but I don't know it yet narratively.
2: Uh, um, When I first started writing, um, again, I was operating um, out of a considerable amount of anxiety and fear of failure, and so I would outline everything. And uh, I would outline it all the way to the end. And um, it just seemed too stressful, and, and too much pressure was involved to start something and not know how it was going to end. And um, over the years, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with starting something and not knowing how it's going to end. And, um, and actually, that's where the pleasure comes from. And, uh, and that's also where the stress comes in. But, um, but uh, you know, how do you write something... You know, how do you write something when you don't even know what the first scene is going to be? You know, much less what it's going to to be at page 300. And so at a certain point, I came to the conclusion, well, you figure out the story by writing it. But how do you write the story if you don't know what the story is? Well, that's why writers are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, so I suppose what we do is we go on faith that over time you know, with all our fumbling and stumbling, the story will reveal itself if we're diligent and, um, and if the gods are with us.
1: I'm gonna ask each of them one more question and then I'm gonna let you ask some questions, okay? Do you have questions? Do you? Good, or right, I'm gonna ask each of them, what are you working on now? Amy?
3: Um, I will find out tomorrow when I meet with my editor. (laughs) He's flying from New York, I'm flying here to San Francisco, back home, and uh, we'll have dinner. But we have talked about two books as possibilities, and one is the novel, the next novel, and the other is a nonfiction book about writing. Uh, A lot of what I will write on for the next year has to do with my schedule. Very hard to work on a novel when I am going from city to city um, almost every day, and I'll be going from San Francisco to D.C. to Sa- uh, New York to Spain to Norway to back to Seattle and so on and so forth. So I think the nonfiction will be easier because it'll be a series of essays. Um, it was just about writing. Have you ever wondered how a, an editor and a an author work together? That in part is what this book is about. Um, during the writing of this book, um, this editor I have now, uh, is the—it's fir- it's the first time I've ever worked with him, uh, and he's the legendary editor Dan Halpern of Echo with HarperCollins. Uh, our relationship as writer and editor was so amazing. Uh, we exchanged about 1,600 emails during the course of this. Dan, early on, uh, he said, I love these emails. He said, I think we should publish these, which completely freaked me out. And I said, I will never write another email to you. (laughs) Um, And even if I agreed, it would become so self-conscious as to be dishonest. Um, And then he said, no, okay, I take it back. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Well, when I finished the book, he said, I think we should publish our emails. We're not going to publish all of them, but we probably would take select things and during a portion of the book talk about that editor-writer relationship.
1: And Ben, what are you working on?
2: Okay, I'm about 200 pages, um, rough pages, into a novel set in Haiti. And um, Haiti's a place I've been going to since 1991. And um, I have one failed novel Mm -hmm. about it. That was the first novel I wrote. And... um, And I mean, why Haiti? Well, I mean, we could get into that some other time, but I think the point I want to make is one of the wonderful things about doing this kind of work is that you follow your interest wherever it leads you. And um, you don't have a boss. And uh, you have a great deal of freedom to explore um, if you can keep body and soul together economically. But, um, I mean, Haiti was a place that Um, just kind of got its claws in me from an early point, even before I went there. And, um, and I started going and exploring it. And, um, and so for all of you MFA students out there or would be, or you're considering getting an MFA and then embarking on this, you know, this, this really contingent, provisional, notion of trying to make a life as a writer. I think maybe 40 years ago, the stakes were a lot higher in this sense. If you went and joined corporate, corporate America, you got something in return. If you sold your soul, you got, you know, a reasonable prospect of, of job security, good health benefits, and when you retired, a, a secure pension and now you can sell your soul and you yeah. might be out on your ass next week. So why not go ahead and do what you want?
1: <laughs> I'm gonna go to the, to the mic so I can see you. We got this light in our faces. Um, I wanna thank both Amy and Ben and I'm gonna have some questions coming. But first let me just say that you might get a hint for our Name That Author contest from what you've heard or thinking about these two. Just bear that in mind. And if anybody wants Name That Author entry forms, I have some with me, come talk to me, or go to booth 909. Okay, first question in the second row, right there in the middle.
2: Um, The gentleman's question is how I came up with my awesome dialogue. Um, And and thanks to your son for reading the book. Um, I do appreciate it. Uh, You work at it. Um, You pay attention um, to the life around you. And again, that's another wonderful thing about doing this kind of work. You can't do it if you're numb or sleepwalking through life. Because writers are desperate people. We need everything we can get our hands on. And so, just out of necessity and desperation, yeah, you know, I'm listening and looking and trying to absorb everything I can. Um, I mean, for this book, I read all the books, you know, all the memoirs. I hung out with soldiers quite a bit. Um, yeah, you know, I watched the documentaries, and and then I tried to tune into the sound of it, and just line by line, hopefully, you know, got as close as I could to the authentic voice.
1: Alright, you in the blue shirt. Short story versus novel. Short story versus novel. Yeah. Question? Going back to short stories. Is that for Ben? Yes.
2: Okay. Well, I like writing both. And, um, I mean, I wish I was faster. Because I have so many more novels and stories I want to write. Um, but, uh, yeah, I like writing both. I would be sad if someone said you, can, you have to pick one or the other. Um, there's less stress in writing a story. I think it's a lot easier on the psyche to have a three-week failure as opposed to a three-year failure, (laughs) and I've had one of those, um, but, uh, I like writing both.
1: Okay, uh, I'm pointing right at you, you're in the third row.
2: Um, the gentleman's question is The veterans who've read Billy Lynn, um, do they feel like it's authentic? You know, that, that, that it's a good book? Um, and uh, I have to say, without exception, all the veterans who've made contact with me, yes, they feel very positive about the book. It's a self selecting group. I mean, the ones who thought the book is lousy or just were never inclined to pick it up or put it down after three or four pages they aren't the ones who who make the effort to seek me out. At least that hasn't happened yet. And um, so, I mean, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from soldiers, which is about the best praise uh, I could get, I think.
1: Other questions?
3: It delayed my novel by about three years. (laughs) Um, Actually, um, I got seduced into co-writing that with uh, Ron Bass. and uh, Because Ron Bass and Wayne Wang, the director, had said, I think you would learn something creatively about earning a scene and emotionally where a scene begins and where it ends. And that was uh, like heroin to me, to hear those words. And they said I wouldn't really have to do that much, but I would just kind of float in and out. And three years later, or two years later, you know, we had this movie, and my having co-written this with Ron Bass, um, who is an amazing screenwriter and mentor and teacher. Uh, the other part of it is that's so different is that you have 90 minutes in which to tell this story, or uh, less than two hours. Uh, and it's quite different, and so you're very much aware of the difference in the medium uh, and how you have to depict something and, and very much um, those white spaces that you can have in your novel and how those are represented on the screen. I find it very, very different. And, you know, having to start with the notion that you, you have the heart of the story, and you have um, these characters in their souls, and then you have to recast. Of all the three of us working on it, I was the least uh, protective of the novel. I would say, those are just words. Get rid of that. or we don't need that character. It's too long. you know they would defend the book, which I thought was very touching. <laughs>
1: Another question? It's all. Front row.
3: What the, the question was about China and uh, how much it's influenced my work, and now China has changed so much, and how will that influence uh, my work in the future? I'm, you know, so far I've been really interested in my family's past, which, in our family, ended uh, the Chinese part of it ended in 1949 when my mother and father arrived here. So the history has always been there in the past, but recently I found that. Uh, my sisters who had been left behind. Um, one of them revealed something to me which uh, was quite shocking. Um, as a child, I, first of all, as a child I had a stereotype of China, like many people. Images from Life magazine of uh, peasants in the field with the conical hats bent over in the rice field. And I learned from my sister about five or six years ago as I was going off to a little village in the mountains of Guizhou, China, one of the most remote, probably the most remote poorest province, that she said, what's so special about that? She said, I lived in one of those places for 18 years. She was the rice farmer in the conical hat bent over in the fields, picking leeches off her legs. I don't know why I didn't know that. And so now I have a family member with immediate history in China that took place after 1949. The China today does include my family, um, does include some difficult things that have happened recently with another sister. And you know, so many stories begin with these difficulties, with these conflicts, and and so there I have China in the present day that if you have not been to China, let me just say this, the most modern airport I have ever been to is in China. The most tricked out hair salon I have ever been to is in China. The most technologically challenging hotel I have ever been to (laughs) is in China. Um, Some of the most expensive things you can buy in the way of food is in China. China is not what it was before. You know, therein, I think, lies a possible path to what I might write about in the future, which has a lot to do with change perception and desire and greed. Um, Not just, I'm not talking about greed on the side of Chinese, I'm talking about opportunity and greed in general of people who go
1: there. One last question, Jill. One last question. What, how are we looking? We've got 30 seconds. 30 seconds, right behind you. Question. For Amy Tan. Amy. Your work digs very deeply into the power imbalance
3: between men and women. How do you find the men that you deal with react to your work? Yeah, you know, I, the most negative things um, that I get usually are with Asian-American men. Um, oftentimes teaching in universities, who feel that I am sh- not portraying men in a good light and that I'm not creating role models. And, uh, and I, I don't think of my work as being educational or as uh, social propaganda. Uh, it just so happens in my family there were a lot of terrible men, and they are my source of inspiration. Um, my father was a wonderful man, but he died early in, in my life. And that's why a lot of uh, good men die in my books. Um, but I, I also, I, I don't think that I'm, I'm writing on the basis of terrible men. And in this book, there are some characters I think, I would love these men if they were real. Um, and as I think about the, the, the way that they communicate their relationship with women, it has much to do with um, language. And in uh, my... Uh, the the misunderstandings that are in there that underlie a lot of the culture and a lot of the experiences and histories, personal histories of these people. Um, I will be doing um, a conversation with a woman named Deborah Tannen. I don't know if you've heard of, you just don't understand. Uh, She's a longtime friend from when we were in a doctoral program in linguistics uh, many, many years ago. And we'll be having a conversation at Penn Faulkner in Washington, DC, about this very subject of men and women and language and discourse and and what is contained within that discourse.
1: Terrific. I want to thank you all. We need to move through the room. You have an opportunity to have your book signed by Amy and Ben. But first, how about a big cheer (laughs) and a thank you to both of them for being so generous with their time, their work, and answering our questions. Thank you all.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.